from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Um, I'd like to thank the Society very much for giving me the honour of speaking to you this evening. Project Natter was the, one of the last major technological um, programs in uh, Germany before the end of the Second World War. And tonight it's a little bit like talking about icebergs because you can see this is my new book and um, <laughs> you have to read it on a table, not on your lap. Um, and that's trying to tell the whole story. So what I'll do is touch upon some subjects, but if you're interested to know about any of these subjects in depth, then um, although the book sold out in a week, and I'm sorry about that because I didn't expect it to be so popular, I thought it was highly technical and hardly anybody would want to read it, but it's publications like that. The other books I've written have, have, been, have been published in, in uh, larger numbers and they've ended up having taking years to sell. This one <laughs> sold, sold in a matter of days, so you can't predict books. Um, so I'll, the, 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 the topics that I'll deal with tonight are, are basically related to the technical advances that were made to make human vertical rocket flight uh, possible. Now, I thought you would be interested for those uh, who are uh, dyed-in-the-wool historians, and I imagine a number of you are, that, the, that uh, a gentleman named W.G.A. Perring, fellow of the Royal Aeronautical Society, gave a lengthy paper a critical review of German long-range rocket development on the 1st of November, I think it was, 1945, so not long after the war ended. This was a, a fairly detailed account of the technology of the V-2 rocket. As an addendum at the, fairly close to the end of his presentation, he presented a couple of brief paragra paragraphs on the Natter which he proceeded by talking uh, similarly about the Comet rocket plane. So I, th I thought you'd be interested that, uh, that I'm not the first person to talk about the Natter to society, uh, and it may well be that other people have, but this is probably the first person to mention it to the society. The basic criteria for the project, right, um, at the beginning of 1944, the air war over Germany was beginning to tip in favour of the Allies. Uh, German pilots were dying in numbers that now were beginning to be difficult to replace from flying schools. Uh, part of the problem was that learning to take off and to land uh, an aircraft took up considerable length of time. The other thing was that um, it became evident that ordinary fighters uh, had difficulty defending specific targets. For instance, the uh, synthetic fuel 
production plants and the ball bearing factories. And so the uh, German Air Ministry uh, asked the aviation industry to present to them a rapid, uh, fast interceptor that could be placed around strategic targets uh, that wouldn't require um, aircraft to be doing patrols, uh, standard patrols over areas because that took a lot of fuel and uh, wasn't particularly efficient. Uh, so that's, they asked the industry to submit proposals for a target defence interceptor, one that needed no airfields, hopefully, uh, apart from uh, the fact that it would be difficult to have a whole lot of airfields in Europe to the strategic targets. Um, the airfields were begin, beginning to come under pressure from being bombed and I've mentioned the training of pilots had to be short. These interceptors needed to be able to uh, be built using a minimum of war-critical materials. Um, Barkin complained at one stage that's the chief engineer on the NATA that it was difficult even for him to obtain steel tubing, simple steel tubing. Supplies were becoming more and more difficult to obtain. And the planes needed to be produced quickly and cheaply and in quantity because, as you could imagine, you needed a, a reasonable number of interceptors to be placed around these strategic targets to even blunt the large bomber forces that were being sent to, um, to targets. And, of course, the NATO and these uh, aircraft largely could only be used in the daytime. Uh, they weren't really designed to uh, combat the uh, British uh, night bombing raids. So the basic design you see here, it's actually in three components. Barkham, had, Barkham was very good at drawing on table napkins and things, basic engineering designs, which then became core to the project. And one of, his, one of the sketches he made was to show uh, an aircraft in three components, a nose section, a mid-fuselage, mid-fuselage and a rear fuselage. And you can see that in the, this is a design that uh, was drawn up in late 1944. The project began in July of 44. And in fact, the whole project, you have to realise that whole project I'm going to talk about tonight took nine months. Just an amazing feat of uh, engineering and, uh, and organisation of engineering. And at the moment you can see there are the multiple rocket projectiles, that's the uh, ram rocket tubes or uh, rocket um, missile tubes uh, in the nose. Then we come to the pilot. Uh, they're wearing an oxygen mask. And then we come to, that's the cockpit area, then we come to the uh, propellant tanks. We're now in the mid-fuselage. And then we come to the water liquid propulsion motor, which was attached to the rear frame of the mid-fuselage. Then the rest is the rear fuselage. And you see the combustion chamber of the motor is at the end 
of the rear fuselage, mounted to the end of the rear fuselage. And you'll notice that the empennage is a cruciform arrangement and that they were using elevons, that is, elevators and ailerons combined because there were no ailerons in the main wing. So that was the basic design as of uh, late 1944. Sorry. Now, the first major problem that was faced was how to position a pilot in a vertically taking off rocket aircraft. I know that seems obvious to us now. We're so used to astronauts in the position that we see them now when they take off. But at this time, nobody really knew what to do, how to face this, pro this project, how to put a human being in a vertical, vertically launched rocket. And you see on the left-hand side, this is the first design, the pilot is in the prone position. And initially, they were pushing the project really hard, trying to get it into the air. Um, and this uh, design required the pilot to fly a vertically taking off rocket from the ground upwards. Now that presents a real problem for the pilot to know where he is in space because he needs to see the horizon. The way they got round that was to put a belly window number two into the belly of the fuselage so that the pilot on takeoff could look out of the belly window, sight on the horizon and therefore be able to stabilise the rocket, presume in, in a vertical boost phase of the flight before it began to tip around towards the interception angle. But when he got up to the uh, interception with the target bomber, he would now have to lev partially level off so that he could fire the rockets at the target. Now this would require him to look out of the windshield and as you can see, he's going from this to this. That's very awkward uh, to hold that position of, of extension of the neck in that position for a while. And so they began to develop, uh, or they developed um, a mock-up which had a tilting, tilting seat so that the seat would automatically move around so that the pilot could be in either looking out of the belly window or looking out of the windshield, depending on the actual position of the matter, its attitude in relation to the Earth. Then you see the other problem was that the pilot was now taking the G-force, the acceleration force, from head to foot. That's not the best way, as you, I'm sure many of you know, to take G-force. It could mean that the pilot... The pilot, if the pilot was subjected to fairly high G-load, he could grow, his vision could, he start to lose his vision or grow out, or um, he, he could lose consciousness if it was really severe and if he was a susceptible subject. So they thought, well, the second one, B here, you see that uh, they started to think, well, maybe we could have the pilot crouching because it was known that if pilots crouched, and tense the abdominal muscles, they might be able to sustain a slightly higher G-load. 
but they, that really wasn't that really wasn't a, an answer to the problem. And so you see in C, they've done away with the better window, and that, as I've said, presented the problem of orientation at takeoff. But Barkham had always advocated from the beginning that the natter should be flown by autopilot. But because of the pressures of the development program and the masters in Berlin pushing hard to get something into the air to try to uh, take the edge off the bombing attacks in the daytime, uh, they went ahead with the development so that the pilot was now lying in a normal position when the plane is horizontal and the aircraft is horizontal. This is the normal position of a pilot in an aircraft. But, as, but you can see now when the, when the natter is on the launch pad, he's lying on his back, just like the astronauts do today. And that means he's taking the initial boost phase G-force from the chest to the back. That's transverse G. So that, we know, I'm sure many, many of you are sure know, that is the best way to take G-load. And you can sustain G-forces to very high levels lying in that attitude. So that was basically how the archetypical position for the astronauts uh, became evolved. This is the mission profile, and this was drawn up in November 1944. It has a rather bizarre thing here, for those of you who have noticed that this, this, these lines here. One of the early proposals was for a thing called cable guidance of the NASA during the initial boost phase, so that when the where the cables would stabilise the natter vertically and the cables would, only, would be released automatically when the natter achieved a specific velocity and hopefully started to gain stability through aerodynamic stability. Uh, uh, but that was done away. It was never used, although it's said that some tests were done at Pinamundi, uh, at uh, the Pinamundi uh, Air Base. Uh, but... Um, that wasn't pursued, and I'll show you the actual launch pad, uh, launch uh, system later. Once the boost phase was over, the motor then went into the ascent, then pitched over into the ascent angle, maintaining that angle until it almost reached the uh, attack altitude, and then pitched again so that the uh, weapon system could be aligned with the target bomber. And you see that at the top. Uh, of course, timing is of the essence here because you need to fire the natter and you need to know the velocity and direction of the bomber so that they intercept at this point at the top here and the weapon system can be used on the bomber. Without that, it's all useless. And I'll talk a little bit about that as well. Then, after the attack, the pilot dived the plane down to about three kilometres altitude, and then he, he pulls a lever which releases the nose, but simultaneously releases either a recovery or a drag chute from the back of the nat in the rear fuselage. That drag chute decelerates the rear fuselage, and of course the inertia of the pilot simply means that he moves forward 
and is free of the NASA and then, pilot, and then uses his parachute uh, recovery, his own personal parachute, to come down onto the ground. And it was hoped that they could recover the rear, fuse, rear part of the NASA because in that part of the NASA was the most expensive part, the Walter liquid propulsion rocket motor. Now, the NASAs were built in western, uh, southwestern Germany in uh, Baden-Württemberg uh, at a little town called, now called Bad Waldsee. It was called Waldsee then. And that's where Eric Barkham, the chief engineer, had his own aircraft factory. He'd, he, uh, he wanted to build aircraft himself and he set up his own factory. And the aircraft were then taken on trailers about 50 kilometres to the west where there was a, an upland called the Huberg Upland. On that upland was a military training area near a town called Stetten am Kaltenmarkt. And uh, this is an RAF reconnaissance photograph of the area on the Huberg on that military training area. This is a little farming village which was called the Ochsenkopf, which means ox's head, ox's head. This is a photograph of the test area for the Natters. Absolutely amazing. And uh, over the last few years, I've been able to interpret this, uh, uh, and it is quite remarkable, as I think you understand now. On the left-hand side at number one, is a shadow of the steel vertical uh, experimental launch tower. And then at two, they were working on a simplified launcher called the Pole, P-O-L-E, Pole Launcher. And that is the operation, they're testing operational machines there. So they had two launch pads, one purely experimental and one testing the operational machines. Um, at three, there was a long, tall building made to look like other farm buildings. For example, uh, there's, where are we? Uh, there's a building here, and there was also some buildings in this region here which were probably to uh, house uh, farm animals during the wintertime because it gets very cold and there's snow on the ground in winter. You can't have your stock outside in this area in winter. You have to have them inside. So they tried to make this building look as much like a farm barn as they could from the air. Uh, but in fact, it was a vertical assembly building for the Natters. In that building, they kept the uh, propellants uh, in one area, the hydrogen peroxide and the hydrazine hydrate. And in another area, they set up the natters on a vertical assembly, a vertical assembly stand called the Startgestell. And the Startgestell was wheeled. It had wheels. Now, I don't know what kind of wheels, but we do know that the natter was set up on these vertical assembly structures. The booster rockets, the four Schmidting booster rockets, were attached on either side, two boosters on either side. And the nozzles were angled so that they, their thrust went through the centre of gravity, the centre of mass of the, of the natter, 
uh, and very accurately. And then the natters were wheeled out into the area here and the Walter propulsion motor could then be tested in the vertical attitude. Uh, so you didn't have to take the Walter motor out and then put it, test it and then put it back in again. You could test it as it would be when the natter was being launched vertically. Then the natter would be transferred to a trailer taken along these roads and then brought up to either of the launch pads depending on the kind of machine the test that was required. So that, I think, you'll find is quite a remarkable, remarkably sophisticated area. Now, I'll tell you right now that Barkham was a good friend of Werner von Braun's. Von Braun didn't have the time to be engaged in this. Von Braun, of course, wanted to be engaged in a, ver a manned vertical takeoff rocket because his love was manned spaceflight. But he couldn't be. But uh, Barkham used to go regularly to Pinamundi and speak with, Bar uh, speak with uh, von Braun. And I'm sure von Braun gave him a lot of guidance uh, uh, on what to do from the technical aspect. So it's interesting to know whether the, whether the British knew what this was. Uh, and they did overfly quite regularly. And uh, the Germans tried to hide the natters using nets over them, camouflage nets. But, and, and I think wanted to believe that, that the Brits didn't know what was happening. If anybody can find me information about how these, photo, how these photographs were actually interpreted, I'd be really interested to read that to find out about that. As you can imagine, it's quite interesting to know how much the British knew at this stage. This is halfway through April 1945. Here is the steel launch tower. It's about 30 metres high. And you can see an intrepid ground crewman right at the top. Gives you an idea of the scale. He's up on the platform at the top there. You can see his head and shoulders and his feet just below. And this is an experimental machine in the tower. You can see that it's guided up the tower by these two guideways. The tips of the wings fit into these guideways. And then the lower vertical tail fin has a little foot, little slide shoe, which fits into a central rail that runs up the centre of the tower. And then there's a, a, a steel ladder which runs up the back of the tower for the service personnel for the ground crewmen who are servicing the natter, but you'd have to be pretty brave, wouldn't you, to be clamoring around that structure uh, without a safety harness. So that's a test machine. You can see the Schmidting boosters on the side, mounted on the side of the rear fuselage. Now, I'm pushing on now quite quickly um, to say there is a test program of unmanned machines. Uh, now, Berlin said we want you to, uh, they did a, Berlin said they wanted a man to fly it. And uh, Barkham and his colleagues set up a, a test, an unmanned test with a dummy pilot. And that was remarkably successful. That worked really well. The, um, the dummy pilot came down after the test flight on his own parachute. And, uh, it, and the rear fuselage was recovered on another parachute. And the, uh, a couple, about a week later, they set up this test to have a manned flight. And this is the machine, M23, uh, waiting in the launcher 
for destiny, so to speak. This is the 1st of March, 1945. This is the first time a human being had been launched off the ground by pure rocket power. This was of some historical significance, as you could imagine. This was really the beginning of the possibility of people being able to be launched from the ground in a rocket vertically, not like the Comet, which used an airfield, but now vertically, straight up, by, boost, by uh, rocket power. And there's some interesting things here. This shows you the degree of sophistication. We kind of, the NATO was written off for some time by some people as a little wooden aircraft of no significance. This is an FM receiving aerial, at one, mounted to the metal tire. Uh, two is the canopy, and I show you this because this is of significance in a moment. This is the canopy undone. It's hinged at the back of the cop, top of the cockpit. And that is the head cushion, the pilot's head cushion behind his head to support his head. Uh, three is a pitot tube. Uh, four is an inspection cover so that can be taken off and the Walter propulsion motor fine adjustments can be made to the Walter propulsion motor. Five is an RDF aerial. It was a, I don't know whether you can see it, but it's a circular aerial there on the back of the fuselage. That was, we're not absolutely sure, but I suspect that was so that when the pilot had completed the, the mission and was coming down and leveled off and was waiting to parachute down under his own personal parachute, um, he needed to know where the safest area was and where the recovery crew would be waiting for him. So a signal was, he was use, probably going to use RDF and listening in his headphones for the signal sound. You know all about uh, the uh, Lorenz uh, uh, homing, uh, landing system and so forth. Uh, so this is an RDF aerial. And very interestingly, you might just make out it's easier in the original, but there's a, there's a power cable or a wire cable running across the left horizontal tail fin and up the vertical tail fin. And that is presumably the um, FM uh, transmitting aerial because there were a whole lot of uh, uh, data collecting instruments on the uh, various airfoils uh, so that the position of the, of the uh, elevons could be uh, recorded and other data input from the Walter propulsion motor. There were several, there were a number of channels and a sophisticated multiplexing system was used so that multiple data sources could be uh, received by ground, two ground receiving stations. There was one ground receiving station at the launch pad and another ground receiving station in the field. There were also two kinetheobolite stations uh, running high speed and low speed uh, film. If you don't know what a kinetheobolite is, it's a, it's a camera with a telescope and it, moving, and it can take moving pictures and it can home in on do close-ups of the rocket as it takes off. And presumably they are very similar to the ones being used at Pienamundi by Werner von Braun. <clears throat> oh. Sorry. Uh, this is Lothar Sieber, a young Luftwaffe officer. And it's a really interesting and rather heart, heartstring story. He was just engaged to his uh, fiancée, and um, they were planning to be married 
a month after this. Um, and Lothar Sieber volunteered for this flight. He was very keen to be the first man to man a vertically taking off rocket. You can see here it's difficult for him to get into the cockpit and the ground crew people are helping him. There's his right hand is actually holding onto a hand grip which is on the outside of the nose and the, uh, one of his ground crewmen is holding his left hand and his right leg is into the cockpit, left leg on the, uh, on the, launch, pla on the launch platform or on the, actually on the wing, I think. And you can see the cockpit uh, there with the head cushion, with his head cushion on the underside, seat belt dangling over the edge of the cockpit at the back there, unfastened seat belt. This is, there we go, so uh, the natter is rising now under the power of the four Schmidting boosters and the uh, Walser motor, and you can see the dirty flame, the dirty smoke, I mean, coming from the boosters on either side, and then you can see the white smoke coming from the, from the combustion chamber, exit of the combustion chamber of the Walter propulsion motor. All seem to be going well. The plane took off to about 500 metres vertically, stably, uh, and all seemed well. But then, uh, then the plane began to gradually tip backwards onto its back. And we think that was because, because of the 3G G-force. Uh, so, but without being able to see the horizon, lost, the, lost his feeling of position and inadvertently, under the G-force, began to pull back onto the control column, which began to tip the plane onto its back. Also, and you can imagine, you can see it, see a black blob. About this stage, and that's probably just a dirty smudge, but in fact, about this stage, the people at the launch pad saw a black object fall away from the plane, and that tragically was Sieber's canopy. Sieber had to wait all afternoon for the launch. He was, it was planned to launch him at 12 o'clock. This is typical of things like the Mercury program, if any of you can remember back that far. The launch just was delayed and then delayed and delayed. And then the pilots got really toy. I mean, the astronauts got really toy about this. And I suspect that happened to Lothar Sieber too. You can imagine what it was like uh, in his position. Um, and um, he presumably lost concentration and we think that he didn't fully latch his canopy, and the canopy and the slipstream by this stage, because the net is accelerating very fast, is travelling quite high, at a high velocity. The slipstream whipped the canopy off, broke the hinge, and unfortunately his headrest was on the underside of the canopy. And at 3G, his head went back and hit the back of the cockpit. It either knocked him unconscious or broke his neck, sadly. So the plane is now uh, without control plane is now flying on its own. And I've read many accounts of what happened. I've read accounts of people who saw the plane crash, many accounts of the plane being launched. This is what I believe happened. And of course, this, this, you have to, we have never seen uh, the Kinney Theodolite footage, whether that was all destroyed before the war ended, we don't know. There's not a single movie film of any launch of any matter that has been publicly released whether it was all destroyed by the Germans 
or whether the Americans simply didn't want to release it, I don't know, and when people have just forgotten it's still classified. But anyway, another story. Uh, so this is the sequence. Plane took off, seemed to be stable, began to tip onto the back, then the canopy fell away. I believe the plane just continued in an arc like that and then eventually came down. It was seen to be diving vertically before it crashed. And uh, in fact, there are, uh, in the book you'll find there are accounts of young boys who were playing football very close by, heard a double bang before it hit the ground. And in fact, when you calculate the fact that it took 55 seconds in that flight and it travelled 6,667 metres in that time, and if you take the shortest arc curve, it turns out that plane was doing 1.2 mark, so it's actually broken the speed of sound. So it may be the first time a human being in a, in a rocket plane had actually uh, broke, broken the speed of sound. The plane was crashed, was uh, uh, impacted at very high velocity. We believe the liquid propulsion motor was burning throughout the whole flight. So by the time it was on the downslope and the water motors accelerating it as well, uh, it was travelling very fast, whatever the case. Very sad, and of course Lothar Seabood died. Oh, um, interestingly, the canopy fell off quite early in the flight and fell quite close to the, to the launch pad and it was recovered, and here it is. Amazingly, we have a photograph of it. Uh, we think that uh, Barkham had this photograph, and this is from his collection. You see on the left-hand side the perspex right window, and then on the right-hand side the left perspex window. This is the front edge of the canopy. This is the little handle with the latch that was meant to latch the canopy to the nose section. And uh, this, is the part, this is the head cushion here. There's a little ventilation hatch, if you wonder what that is. It can be slid back to allow air to get into the cockpit. And you can see the tip of the latch is bent downwards, which suggests that, that it was under a fair bit of force and then it, uh, then the canopy came off and uh, that, was the end of the, that was the story. We know that, that if, that had been fully, if that canopy had been fully latched, um, tests had already been done and a, and a glider flight, a free glider flight, had been undertaken by a man called Hans Zubert. And that flight was taken up, to, he flew that in a relative dive to 300, kilo, 300 kilometres per hour and the, and the canopy heard fine. And all the post-flight uh, post tests, post-flight uh, tests, showed that the latch should have held, so we believe very strongly, and in fact all the senior engineers, I've been able to find various um, interrogation reports that the Americans obtained, and they show that they, all the engineers admit that the most likely cause was pilot error, and that the, the problem was not the engineering so much, the rocket, rockets worked fine, and the plane was fine, it was pilot error, very sad. But this chap had been under such enormous stress, uh, it's not surprising that he lost concentration. So what are the lessons learned from M23? Firstly, the launch and boost phase stresses on a VTO rocket pilot are multiple, rapid in onset and potentially overwhelming. A pilot cannot be relied to manually control a ro the rocket's flight path during the powered phase. 
flight control by autopilot is essential for reliable and precise powered flight of the VTO rocket and the pilot should be provided with the facility to monitor the powered flight and to take manual control only if the autopilot fails. So although it was a tragedy that Seba died, you can see that this was a very important lesson that was learned and the engineers took this and went with it and fortunately, they were, fortunately they, the uh, engineers were not forced to fly another plane uh, that didn't have an autopilot and the only planes that flew after this were planes to test the development of the autopilot and other systems. So they were flying, most of those were flying with dummy pilots but there was never another manned flight in this program. So, the engineers, and I'm sure Barkham just felt so badly about this because Barkham, as I said, knew in his heart that what would have to happen is that an autopilot would be needed to fly this vertically taking off manned rocket craft, and he was quite right. So he was a very, very uh, skillful and very bright engineer, and he, he knew what the answer was. So they then developed... Um, these are the, this is a design for an operational machine, and this is in, from sixth of this design is sixth of March, nineteen forty-five. And you can see here that there's a compartment which is the electronics bay. Uh, what they did was they put an extra frame in here so that they could lengthen the uh, mid fuselage and allow the occupation there of the autopilot system. This. These two components, I believe, are the uh, roll and yaw gyroscopes. And this, uh, this, is, this box here is presumably the pitch gyroscope. So we have three-axis control, three-axis gyroscopic control in this autopilot. And that pitch uh, gyroscope is mounted in the instrument panel, and I'll explain just briefly to you what the logic of that is in a moment. Um, one, uh, there's one movie film that does exist, wartime, uh, that was taken in the Barkham Work Factory in Bad Waldsee, and this shows that one of the first machines to be equipped with the autopilot system, and it, we don't have any documentation, so we've had to, I've had to go and look at all the different components that made up the autopilot system, because I do have, um, in the Deutsche Museum, believe it or not, uh, there is a set of blueprints for the operational machine uh, which has been redacted, presumably by the Americans, uh, of some very uh, sensitive areas of the autopilot control, the, the uh, central autopilot control. But there's enough, I also have... Uh, wire circuit diagram showing where, where the various components are apart from this central part. But you can work around that, and I, won't, I haven't got time to explain to you how I do that, how I did that. But um, this is a gyroscope. That is the yaw gyroscope, and this is the roll gyroscope. And um, this box contains three damping gyroscopes for roll, pitch, and yaw. As I said, the pitch gyroscope is mounted in the instrument panel. And you may say, why did they do that? 
This is our reconstruction and we of the uh, operational, manned operational machine instrument panel. You can see there are very few instruments because they're trying to keep the cost down and also trying to compress it into a small area in the instrument panel. This is a gyroscopic, gyroscopic device. When the pilot is lying on his back, this little white dot sits in the center. So the, this gyroscope is stabilized on the vert vertical axis to the ground. Always like that, it's stabilized vertically in space. And you can see whether the, the plane is pitching uh, or, or yawing away from the required uh, flight path. Uh, this, this instrument is the pitch gyroscope. In um, a lot of German aircraft, this LKU-4 uh, instrument was designed to, to set the course of the bomber or the fighter plane. But what they've done, and, and normally it just basically tells you azimuth, it sets azimuth, where you're going to go that way, more so, you know, on, the, on a compass bearing, sets the compass bearing. Uh, and this is, a, this, is the fixed, this is the fixed compass that's fixed. You can fix that in relation to the fuselage. And this is the free floating. This is the gyroscope that is, 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 is fixed in space, not connected to the fuselage. And uh, this device was, this device in the matter was rotated through 90 degrees. So now it could tell the pilot if the plane was following the preset autopilot uh, angle of ascent. And I'll explain just a little bit more about, you, about that for you, but as I say, it's a bit like tips of icebergs tonight. But what happened was that the command control on the ground by cable sends data to the autopilot up to the moment of launch. At the moment of launch, the final ascent angle is given to the autopilot. This is all completely separate from the pilot himself. This is the autopilot. That sets this compass angle. And then the pilot can follow this compass to see when it lines up with the required angle of ascent. So when they, those two compasses come together, the pilot says, right, I'm headed straight for the target, for the area where the target bomber is going to be. So that tells the pilot whether the autopilot is working properly or not. If the pilot has to fall back on his own recognizance, he can use this because this is telling him what the vertical and what the vertical is in relation to the matter. What is the vertical? He always knows the vertical in space by using this device. Um, on the left, we have the velocity of the natter goes up to 1,000 kilometers per hour. And this is the altimeter that goes, is calibrated to 16 kilometers. Uh, this is the turbine speed um, um, gauge, tells him what the turbine speed is of the Walter propulsion motor. That's really important when he's firing up the Walter propulsion motor. These two gauges tell him what the pressure is in the combustion chamber of the Walter motor. There's a low pressure range gauge and a high pressure range gauge. The high pressure range goes up to 25 atmospheres. But by that time, if you're running at 25 atmospheres, you're probably burning through the wall of the combustion chamber, so you don't want to do that. Now, 
Uh, believe it or not, this is, there is a small number of photographs that survived, and this is, the op this is an operational machine being launched. I said there were two launch pad, two launch pads at the Oxenkopf. One was that metal tower I showed you. This is the uh, pole launcher. Looks very primitive. Pine pole, vertical pine pole. Barkham said one of the problems was to find pine poles that were truly vertical, but uh, that was just a little aside. Um, we, we have, in the Deutsche Museum, we've found the complete, uh, well, relatively complete set of the engineering plans for the, for the pole launcher. And it was a lovely little, it was a beautiful piece of engineering. There are, quite, there are sophisticated bearings here. You can rotate this pole to the azimuth required setting. And this is a long lever that comes out like the steel-braced lever. And the ground crew would rotate that around. And on the ground underneath the launch pad, I'll show you in a moment, the, they had marked uh, the azimuth angles. So the ground crew would uh, be told through a telephone line from the commander, this is a such and such angle for a launch. Move the, uh, move the uh, lever. Uh, at, to such and such an angle. That would mean that the natter was now on the right azimuth. And of course the commander could command the uh, ascent angle to the autopilot uh, through, another, through a cable. Uh, this, so there's one other thing here. Uh, there are lots of things in this photograph. It's actually full of fascinating information. Uh, but there's one little thing I'd like just to show you the breadth of this program. This little thing here, you might just ignore that and think that's going to go away and it's nothing. In fact, um, I've actually seen uh, photographs of this machine being built. On the, in that movie film, you can actually see this machine under construction and there are also still photographs. And you can see these, this thing as, as well. So it's not just an artifact. And in fact... It's this. It's one of these. These are dipoles. These are dipoles that are set on the horizontal tail plane, these two here, and then there's one on the upper vertical tail fin. The, uh, believe it or not, what was happening at this stage of the development program was that the Germans were working on beam guidance for the Natter. And the natter, if it moved laterally in the beam, it would change the intensity of the signal that it was picking up of the rate, the intensity of the radar beam. And it would, the autopilot would then receive a signal that would interpret the change in the intensity of the signal of the radar beam, and the plane would then be brought back onto the uh, correct uh, um, ascent um, path. And this one is for is for vertical movement from the ascent path. So as this aerial moves in and out of the radar beam, uh, it would detect that and similarly affect the uh, autopilot to make the correction to bring the natter onto the correct ascent path. So beam guidance was the ultimate uh, objective here. And uh, I, know, I know that uh, this is not a figment of our imagination because we have a report where a scientist reports to the Barkham work on the progress being made in beam guidance development. He said that the location of the aerials has been fixed. 
And in fact, on M52, this is the arrangement of the aerials. Whether they actually used a beam, I don't know. That's not, we just don't know. We just don't have the information. The Americans might somewhere, but, we, but I don't. Um, now, this is a place, uh, this, is, uh, this is a little town called Holes Marden, which is about 30 kilometres to the east of Stuttgart. This is the Stuttgart-Munich freeway uh, in 2015. Uh, this is a Google photograph, Google Earth. And uh, the uh, three launch pads had been prepared in March, early April, for the operational machines. The pilots, the eight, eight pilots who are highly decorated pilots who've been twiddling their thumbs learning about how to be an infantryman up in the north, had volunteered to be the first operational uh, echelon for the operational NATO machines. They were billeted in a little, little uh, uh, in a number of places. The senior, senior people got some really nice homes to live in, but, the, uh, but some of the lo lower-ranked uh, personnel were living in a, were billeted in a sports centre in Holzmarden. Uh, there are three launch pads. If you look very carefully, this is 2015 now. This is wintertime, so the trees have lost their leaves. And this is a little forest called the, ha the Hazenholz or rabbit, rabbit wood. And you can just see a circular object here. That's the, what we call the northern pad. This is what we call the western pad. And this is the southern pad. This constituted a unit, an operational unit, these three launch pads. The plan was to have another three uh, further down here. We don't know exactly where and there's no sign that they were ever uh, constructed. But these three launch pads were constructed almost to the stage where they could put the pine pole launcher into the centre of them. Uh, and fortunately, we documented all these. We measured them. We did a whole lot of um, documentation, photographic documentation. These two have been now been destroyed. The, uh, the uh, Deutsche Bahn Railroad has now put a new railway right through here, and these two pads were broken up. And so you can see how important it is to document history when you have the opportunity, because that opportunity may never come again. Here is the northern pad before it was destroyed. And you can see this is the circular gutter where the angle, azimuth angles would be painted. Here, this is the edge, concrete edge of the pad. And you can see this hole in the middle. This is where the pole launcher goes. There's an upper bearing and a bow bearing at the bottom of the pole so the pole can be rotated uh, in, that, uh, in that hole. And the whole natter uh, on it as well, of course, when the natter's mounted on the pole. This is the operational launch area at the Hazen Holes, as we understand it. There, fortunately, a document was uh, prepared uh, by the Barkham work just before the end of the war, and this is from that. This is to some extent based on that document. Uh, this is the northern, there's, if we can imagine the Munich, Stuttgart, Stuttgart Munich freeway is running across at the top here horizontally. This is the northern pad, the southern pad, and the western pad. Then there's a command control uh, here uh, where um, a thing called a Malzigerate is situated. And the Malzigerate is, like is it like a computing device 
which, which determines from data coming in from an optical uh, device called the Entfernungsmesser, which is being operated by troops. And that is like two little telescopes at each end of a long pole. And that can tell you, if you focus on the target bomber, can tell you the height uh, and the speed and the direction of the bomber. And that sends data to the Malziggerate. The Malziggerate then sends, then calculates the angle of ascent. The command controller uh, says, OK, we'll let that go through. And that runs via a cable up to the launch pad. It then goes up inside the natter fuselage to the autopilot and up, like, upgrades, uprates the uh, pitch gyroscope uh, device, which I showed you earlier. So that's the setup. For the, three, um, for the three pads and how uh, some of the data was sent to them and it was to be controlled. <clears throat> um, the uh, the NATA you saw, the operational NATA you saw is called the A1. That was the first version of the operational machine, but the Germans were worried that the super fortress might be deployed in uh, Europe. And uh, consequently, although the A1 NATO could achieve an altitude of 12 kilometres, the pilots breathing pure oxygen through a face mask, that was not going to be adequate uh, for the B0 NATO. The B0 NATO was rated, which is on the, on the cover of my book, uh, the B0 NATO was uh, rated so that it could travel to an altitude of 20 kilometres. It's a long way up. And, of course, as you know, only too well uh, to do that, you need a pressure suit. And uh, despite the fact that um, very little has been written about it, I went to Germany. I found the original documentation uh, written by uh, the uh, Dreigerwerk um, scientists, and there are a whole lot of photographs of pressure suits in that paper. And this is, this is really remarkable. I don't want to hype too much about it, but this suit was really remarkable for its time. It was completely in advance of anything the Americans and the British were doing. Sorry about that, but it's the truth. Um, the helmet here has a little window so you can breathe air uh, when, uh, you're not, uh, when the suit's not pressurized and uh, when you're on the ground waiting to be launched and you can seal that, that little window seals off. Uh, the helmet can be quick, is a quick release type of helmet with stu spring studs. Um, now, the shoulders have ball has a ball bearing joint in each shoulder. There's a ball bearing joint at the upper arms, so we can do that, and we can do that. And uh, there, there are joints here which you may not know a lot about. These are called tucked joints, and I've written a little book called Space Suits, Space Suit, and in that I explain tucked joints. But tucked joints are like if you take your trousers and you make a tuck, then you can roll that backwards and that, the fabric will roll backwards and forwards as you bend and, and uh, straighten your knee. So you can actually get flexion of the knees and flexion at the elbows. The other thing is that there are lure lock uh, fittings like, as the astronauts used in Mercury and so forth. But the f absolutely amazing thing about this is that they put in, it looks like bellows joints at the knuckles. That was highly sophisticated. I mean, the Apollo suit used bellows joints, as you probably know. That was the answer to the Apollo suit. That was the secret behind Apollo, um, being able to get the astronauts to walk on the moon. They had bellows joints in the shoulders, the uh, upper, uh, the elbows and the knees and the waist. 
So that was the uh, very sophisticated pressure suit that was being developed for the Natter pilots of the B0 machine. So how did the Natter set the pattern for human spaceflight? Well, it established, first of all, it established the safest posture for the crew of a VTO machine. It established that a crew could not reliably control a VTO rocket and it made it clear that there was a absolute, it was absolutely essential for an autopilot to be used to control this vertically taking off rocket. Interestingly, this is a, a rather subtle thing, but it developed hybrid liquid and solid propulsion for a manned vertically taking off rocket. What does that remind us of? Reminds us of the space shuttle. And it, and it was the first machine to do that. And it established a precisely timed, uh, timed countdown. In fact, um, Barkham says somewhere, and I, I paraphrase him, but he says that um, uh, one day uh, when rockets take off uh, and, follow and, and uh, take off and look at their uh, clock, on their instrument panel or something like that. So he realised, and in fact, that one of the astronauts said, the clock is running. I don't know whether any of you recall that, but one of the think, Mercury astronauts, they said, or John Glenn perhaps, said, um, the clock is running. So and it looks like there was a small, small um, uh, countdown clock on the instrument mounted just above the instrument panel on the NASA. So I've established a precisely timed countdown, and in my book I, I, I relate the details of the countdown and show how it's, it's uh, timed to the second. It has to be, so that the NASA will get to the uh, target bomber at the right time. It forced the development of a lightweight, flexible pressure suit to protect a crew flying above 12 kilometres, which in itself was a major uh, achievement. So I'd just like to let Barkham have the final words because uh, at the International Astronautical Congress, which was at Stuttgart, in one of the International Astronautical Congresses, I think it was the third, in Stuttgart in 1952, Barkham had come back from South America to, to, um, to Germany in the, the, at the beginning of 52. Barkham said, in, within a few months, we had to track down go through and solve numerous problems associated with vertical takeoff. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.